if you really rope it into your worldview that no matter what you do, you are going to die someday, because you are, if you can just reconcile that fact and put it in your worldview, then the pressure's off in some way. Like succeed, you're going down. Fail, you're going down. So either way, with that end point kind of guaranteed, you're safe. You kind of can't go wrong. And that's the gist that's made playfulness much more accessible to me because I'm going down no matter what I do. So might as well have fun. Hello, 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 and welcome back to another episode of Airplane Mode. I'm your host, Clay Skipper. This week's guest is Dr. BJ Miller. Dr. Miller is a palliative care physician who has just co-authored a book that is about death. It is called A Beginner's Guide to the End, Practical Advice for Living Life and Facing Death. Dr. Miller has a pretty incredible story, which he shares here, but he suffered a serious injury when he was still young, had a very close brush with death, and that led to him going into medicine, but specifically working with people who were terminally ill or towards the end of their life. So, you know, death is a thing that I think most of us avoid talking about or thinking about if we don't have to, but Dr. Miller is someone who encounters it in some ways on a day-to-day basis. So basically, I wanted to ask him, you know, when you're around people who are at the end of their lives, you know, when you're learning about what people do care about towards the end or what they regret or what they would change, you know, how might that shift your perspective or how might that change things you care about or the life you're living? It's a powerful thing, death, if you can bring it into the room. And ultimately, I think you'll find after listening to this conversation with Dr. Miller that it doesn't have to be such a scary thing. It can actually lead to more optimism and more hope. BJ Miller, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Clay. What does the BJ stand for? Bruce Jr. Okay. <laughs> Bruce Jr. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so your middle name is Junior. No, Bruce, my full name is... This, you're going to love this. My full name is Bruce Lewis Von Sidney Miller Jr. Wow. But it's BJ for short. Well, there's a lot I could dive into there, but we are here talking about your book, which is out today, mm-hmm. Beginner's Guide to the End. The full title, Practical Advice for Living Life and Facing Death. That's the one. You've been working sort of in this space for a long time and working with death. I'm curious why, how you and, and your co-author Shoshana Berger, am I mm-hmm. that correctly? Yep. How, how come you decided to write this book now? Well, the short answer is because she asked. Okay. It was like, and it was, but it was, an easy, it was an easy yes in a lot of ways. She asked and it immediately clicked because I had a sense from my clinical work that the world could use a book like this, a basic book for a general audience that covers sort of the waterfront of the issues. Because as a clinician, especially if you do hospice and palliative care work, you see your clinic will be filled with people who are suffering for a lack of just basic information. The idea of having a sort of one-stop shop where all the basic issues are covered, it seemed really like it feels like it could be a very useful thing in the world. It could make my job as a clinician easier, and I think it could make my patients and their caregivers' lives easier too. And so it was a, it was sort of shocking that a book like this hadn't really been mm-hmm. done before. And so we were happy to give it a try. 
But that was the gist. It was sort of like, it's not going to blow out the roof on the subject, but it might raise the floor for people. Like yeah. you give sort of level the playing field. We all have some access to some basic information. And that way, when it comes time for us to be sick or dying, we don't necessarily have to add confusion on top of the list of things we're dealing with. Yeah, Shoshana has that moment where she talks about after her father passed, she, and I think it was her sister, had to Google, Yeah, what do you do when someone dies? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you guys have this moment in the book where you're talking about how if it were up to you, you could, along with driver's ed and sex ed, you would almost have a death ed yeah. course. Yeah. Why do you think it, I mean, this is a broad question, but what are podcasts for if not <laughs> being ponderous? Why do you think we so avoid thinking about this thing that we're all going to experience at some point? It's, a, it's, it's such a good, big, juicy question. I think there are many answers for it. I mean, one is to give ourselves a little bit of a, cut ourselves some slack. We are hormonally wired to run away from our death. I mean, mm -hmm. that we have an inborn fight or flight or freeze kind of response to any threat to our existence. So there's something in us that's not just, it's not just, you can't just write it off as denial, in other words. But- on top of that basic impulse that we have as, as living creatures, we have gotten spectacularly removed from all sorts of things in nature, <laughs> including things like death. Mm -hmm. There's just a, one of the most natural, the most natural thing there is. And if you just think of modern life, we are human nature is pulled away from the rest of nature in all sorts of ways. So if you think about the last hundred years, and as technology has advanced and as new ways to push back on death and extend life, we've gotten very seduced that on some level, death is almost optional. And if you watch our advertisements, if you read the billboards, if you listen to our language, the implication is that death is optional. You, you, you know, don't smoke, eat kale, and you know, you'll live forever. <laughs> yeah. It's the sort of implication. Well, Silicon Valley is like trying to solve it. They are. Like, that's what we do. We make something normal. We call it a problem. We pathologize it. And mm -hmm. then we're going to go to war with it. You know? yeah. And sometimes that works pretty well, and oftentimes it works not at all. And oftentimes, as is the case with end-of-life stuff and death, it's a mix. Medical science and our understanding of health has advanced, and we are able to live longer. And mm -hmm. we have pushed back on nature in all sorts of ways, and I, in ways that I'm happy for. I'm, I am alive because of medical science from my injuries. We can talk about those, but as in college, I had electrical injuries and nearly died from those. And it were not for the Vietnam War and all that was learned about saving folks with burns, I wouldn't be here today. Mm -hmm. I mean, so I am alive thanks to technology and thanks to advances in healthcare. So there's some good news in there too, but the bad news is we just keep orphaning the subject of death and it becomes less and less familiar and then more and more surprising and less and less intuitive and just gets harder and harder than it needs to be. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we could talk about that. There are, I think, myriad reasons for it. And then I also think we're kind of in a moment where we are reacquainting ourselves with nature and we're realizing mm -hmm. that that's a zero-sum game. If we take from over here, if we, you know, we push things here, it's going to take from over there. This idea that we're all interrelated, that the pollution I make in my own home is going to make its way to China and vice versa. I mean, the whole world yeah. order is sort of changing around this. And it's sort of – it feels like a reckoning. Mm -hmm. And not to be dramatic, it just feels like a reckoning. Like, yeah, no matter what we do, we're still going to die. Okay, we have to reacquaint ourselves with that very mm -hmm. basic fact. You briefly touched on your injuries there. And mm -hmm. I wonder, I know you've told the story many times, but I just feel like it's informative mm -hmm. for the work you've done since. So I'm curious if you might tell us that story of, sure. of those injuries. Let's see. So it's been almost 30 years, 29 years. So sophomore year of college, November's, we had just gotten back from Thanksgiving break. 
And a couple of my friends and I were just out in the town horsing around. Nothing particularly crazy. We'd done crazier things, but we were on our way to the Wawa market to pick up a sandwich. And where I went to school, there's a commuter train that runs right onto the edge of campus. And it was parked. It was not, it was non-operating. I was just sitting there. We decided to climb it, again, not like you would climb a tree. Yeah. Not, it didn't feel like us. We weren't train surfing or anything like that. But I happened to be the first one up, and I had a metal, metal watch on. And the, in New Jersey, the trains run with the wires overhead. So when I stood up, I got close enough to the power source, and the electricity arced to my watch mm. and entered the arm and then blew out the feet. And that was that. I mean, sort of a freak millisecond accident. No, that was it. Yeah. How long was the sort of recovery? Can we talk to, like, discuss the recovery process? How long that took? What mm-hmm. that was like? Um, yeah. It was intense. I mean, it was, it was, as you could imagine, it was yeah. very intense, you know, and probably exactly the ways you would imagine it. You know, I was in a burn unit in New Jersey at St. Barnabas Hospital for a couple months and then in a step down unit and then in a rehab hospital back home in Chicago where I was, my family was from at the time in an outpatient rehab. And so that was November. And then I went back to school the following fall, but recovery per se took, you know, I'd say for me, I really noticed that I had kind of re-equilibrated, you know, I had kind of accommodated yeah. the accident by by the fifth year. So it was a long, slow process, but early days, touch and go, like, you know, could die tonight kind of thing. Yeah. Um, wow. So that was, that was very intense, all sorts of crazy pains. And yeah, we could talk for hours about all the thoughts sure. that came up. And, yeah. But I will say, and I'm happy to talk about any of it, but it did... Uh, apropos our conversation, it did get me very, very interested in what it means to be a human being. Am I less of a human being because I had no feet now? I mean, does that, where was the math? How was I different now? Truly different. Was I of less value? What was I going to do with my life? Who would care? Was I going to be in a relationship again? You know, mm-hmm. these are the kind of questions rattling around in my head at the time. But I sort of settled on, okay, this question of what makes a human being a human being and realizing it wasn't their feet. And that turned me on to kind of reapproaching my own being human and kind of re the, the opportunity was I got to refashion myself. I got to kind of start from scratch and hmm. build my life up again. It's sort of like it took me down to some basic raw material and then yeah. I got to refashion from that. Huh. And that was hard, but in a way it was a wonderful opportunity. I mean, yeah. I suppose we can do, any of us can do that all the time, but I had a big fat excuse to do so. And that ultimately led me into medicine. I imagine a lot of people wouldn't even survive that incident. I mean, is that right? Or what? I mean, did the doctors I, talk to you about that? Yeah, or? I was very lucky. Yeah. I was very lucky because I had road crew and I was in probably the best shape huh. that I, I'll ever be in. So I was physically very fit at the time and certainly that helped. And I was 19, you know. So yeah, that was all very fortunate. But I also think there's something with electrical burns. I don't know if this is true, but I've heard that it's sort of, you know, smaller voltage could kill uh, a healthier person. It depends on where it hits you in your huh. cardiac cycle, where your heartbeat is at the time. Wow. And there are all sorts of variables I couldn't pretend to do justice to. But in answer to your question, yeah, I was very lucky to survive that. And at what point did the determination that three of your limbs had to be amputated, did that occur? That started, so the first, it was sort of, I, I don't know, I think it probably had, I don't know, eight or nine surgeries or something like that. Because with burns, you can't, it's not obvious what tissue is viable mm-hmm. and what tissue has to go. And and one of the, I referenced earlier, the lessons that have been learned from wartime was the realization that past the initial event, people die from burns from infection because 
your skin barrier is broken. Mm -hmm. And so infection is the thing. And watching burned skin, whether it's going to yield to infection and necrosis and die versus kind of make its way through and survive is not obvious. So the first amputations were, I think, day six in. So they took as little as they needed to and then would go back to the operating room and reassess. And so it was piecemeal amputations over the course of, uh, I'd say, the first two months. Wow. You talk in the book about there's a whole section on diagnosis mm-hmm. when people receive a terminal illness diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And you talk about how you should be patient and not expect to reach a place of equanimity mm-hmm. right away, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm curious if we you, – you mentioned earlier about some of the thoughts you had when you were in the hospital mm-hmm. and recovering. And I'm curious if we could unpack your journey to equanimity, yeah. right? Yeah. Like what were some of the questions you started asking yourself in the weeks and months after as you were sort of refashioning mm-hmm. who you were and what you wanted your life to be? I had a mother who had polio and was in a, had used a wheelchair much of my life. And so I had a running start on what it meant to be disabled and the forces at work on you there. You know, early on, I could feel the impulse to f- like self-pity mm-hmm. is, you know, you're really trying to keep that at bay. I learned from my mom that self-pity is such a seduction. People are going to pity you. You're going to pity yourself. And on some level, it gets you sort of a sweetness from people. People will give you things. <laughs> there's like, there's an upshot to it. But it's like a sugar high. It doesn't last. And it, it's a trap. Those early days are hard because you you know you'd be doing something that you knew you were not going to be good at, but you knew you had to do it. You knew you were going to do something where you were going to embarrass yourself in front hmm. of others, but you had to do it because otherwise you were going fall prey to this pity thing. So that was a lot of the early stuff. And then it became questions like, <laughs> am I going to get laid again? Mm-hmm. Sorry if that sounds graphic, but seriously, you know, you're sitting 19 year old sitting in this bed and you're like, my God, I, I did not know what to expect there. That was a huge question. And then, you know, beyond that, it was much more sort of philosophical. It was much more of a sense of identity, like who am I now? But anyway, I, I should probably stop because we I could talk about that for hours. And, but that was basically the process. And then going back to college, and then I guess one other piece of information that's kind of useful here is when I went back to school, I changed my major to studying art history. And that was the smartest decision I ever made or huh. one of the best decisions I ever made. Because and the, 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 the hunch was like I had all this stuff that I couldn't change. And I was like as a privileged white Princeton student – I was pretty used to having a fair amount of control over my life mm-hmm. in ways that I completely took for granted. And now all of a sudden, this like kicked my ass in a very, very powerful way. And it was humbling. Mm-hmm. Of course, it was extremely humbling, which of course is of great value. So I was, it was, there were moments of deep insecurity, but a lot of it was just simply being humble and realizing, holy cow, I suffer in ways now that I had just not been in touch with. And so many other people suffer. Like I got turned on to the idea that suffering was a link between people, not this thing that pushed them away. Actually, it was this thing that joined us, that Hmm. every human being suffers. So with all of that, I started studying art as this thing that humans do to make sense of their experiences. That was an essential thing. Making art is this weird, essential thing that humans do. We are a very creative, adaptive species. And then now I had all this grist. I had all this raw material to play with. And I remember in the first art history class, I was sitting there looking at statues that came up, you know, in the slideshow. These old beautiful statues that were missing limbs. They weren't designed that way. They're just statues that got broken over the years. And here we are in this class studying these things and loving them and talking how beautiful they were. And it was literally, it was that simple. I was like, oh, I you know, like I look like that statue on some level. Like we like that statue. Maybe I can like this. Like yeah. it was that kind of wow. silly and that kind of direct and concrete. 
but anyway, that's kind of how I kind of got going down the road. And the, the art thing was I learned how to see. Like we humans have this ability to change our perspective mm. much more than we can change the material world. We can change how we see the material world. Huh. And taking on that power was the key. Speaking of perspective in there, mm-hmm. you know, one thing I wanted to ask was about because you would go on to work at the Zen Hospice Center in San Francisco, yeah. the executive director. Yeah. Are you still working there? Uh, no. I left there about three and a half years ago, and they actually had to close. The oh. Zen Hospice Guest House had to close. Oh, the no. the wow. organization still exists, training volunteers, but the hospice house had to close. The reason I bring it up is because, you know, I know in Zen, Zen Buddhism, a big thing is about clinging and yeah. the way we cling to desires and how that leads to suffering. Yep. And not to typecast you, although I think typecasting this this might be the best type of typecasting that exists. You know, it takes a certain type of person to go to Princeton, and there's a lot of striving mm. and yeah. clinging and yep. aspiration and ambition, I would imagine. Yep. So I'm curious how your perspective maybe after you suffered this accident, or after this accident occurred, how your perspective on ambition and aspiration maybe changed. Great question, man. Because this is one of the great upshots of the experience. So you're absolutely right. It was all this striving that got me to Princeton and you know, you're around all these people. Everything's sort of future oriented, everything's strategic, yeah. everything's a means to some end all the time. And okay, that serves some purpose. You know, I, I get it. It's a compelling way to pull yourself up and out and through life. But boy, is it problematic too. You lose out on so much. And I had had a hunch that in my bones that that wasn't really a great way to live, but I was caught up in that swirl. Mm -hmm. I was very much caught up in that and wanted to keep performing. So the accident very happily was dramatic and profound enough. It forced me to be in the moment, especially in the recovery phase of those first few years. I just couldn't think about the future, too far ahead in the future, because there was just too much unknown. And I was too clogged up thinking about this moment. I had to, dealing with the pain. How was I going to move around campus, get to classes, blah, blah, blah. So that was a great favor. It really taught me to be here now, just from the busyness of it, but also more existentially realizing, holy cow, I could die tomorrow. I could die today, a couple minutes from now. I mean, really knowing that in my bones, not just as this interesting thought, like having experienced it in my bones, that was such a gift. So it kind of forced, forced a sort of meditation into my life of sorts. So that was huge, getting me in the moment and at least aware of when I'm striving and when I'm living now on behalf of some future state. I still do it all the time, Uh but I'm much more aware of it and I can snap out of it. That was a huge, huge gift. Can we unpack a little bit how you do snap out of it? Mm -hmm. Like what is the actual internal process? It's very simple. I just see that I'm doing it. Okay. It's like a, just an observation, self-observation. I watch my brain. I go, oh, right, man, you're doing this right now, not because you enjoy it or interested in it, but because you think it's going to get you somewhere down the road. It's just a simple observation. I'm just mm. more, I guess it's self-awareness. Through all that focusing on my rebuilding myself, I became much more self-aware. And so now I can see myself when I trip into these other patterns. Huh. At what point did you then know you wanted to, because you switched art history, at what point did you know you wanted to go into the medical world? So as I said, like, you know, that whole like in the moment kind of thing, that was great. Like, so the rest of college, it was a wonderful place to have two more years in that setting and that sort of protected bubble setting where you really could be in the moment and soak so much up in your learning. So it was beautiful. It was amazing. And it meant that graduation day was such a trip. I mean, I, I honestly had not thought, I had not 
let myself give any thought to what I was going to do for a living or huh. anything. Yeah. I really <laughs> was in the moment, man. It was really – and it's like graduation day. I was like, huh, holy shit. What am I going <laughs> to do now? And it was really – it was a scary moment. This experience had been so rich for me and it had forced a maturation on me in some ways that I really appreciated Sure, you don't have to lose limbs to learn these things, let's be clear. But I had, and, and I had learned. So the impulse was I really, really wanted to use these experiences. And I started thinking about how I could do that. And so I looked into sort of disability advocacy work, arts advocacy work. But fun, it was it, like medicine lit up as this ambitious thing to try. Yeah, yeah. And now ambition, by the way, quick tension took on different meaning. I was willing to try things and fail. Failure had lost its sting. Oh, which was a huge lesson, huge lesson, especially for a Princeton oh, guy. Yeah, I was going like, to say, imagine at Princeton, not a lot of students there. Oh, and it gave me yeah. such an advantage. I had like a totally different strut when I realized I didn't mind losing. Huh. Super liberating. And that freed me up to just try things like, okay, I'll try going to medical school. What's the worst that's going to happen? I'll fail out or I'll hate it. Then I'll do something else. A thought like that a few years before would have just broken me. I love this. So this is just completely indulging my own curiosity here. But one thing I wanted to talk to you about was, obviously, I just met you now, but having read stories about you and seen interviews mm -hmm. you've done, you seem to have a real sense of playfulness. Yeah, yeah. And as I've done a lot of unpacking in therapy, mm -hmm. I realized that a big problem in my life has been a lack of playfulness. Because, mm -hmm. again, I similarly came from a background, a very, very privileged background, very lucky, mm -hmm. but it has to do a lot with striving yep. and about you act a certain way and you get certain results, very ends oriented. And so failure has always been extremely scary for mm -hmm. me and playfulness has never been mm -hmm. a part of the equation <laughs> yeah. for me because I do not have that sense of being able to <laughs> yeah. strut around and, some, and being like, oh, if it doesn't work out, it'll be okay. I'm basically walking around all the time being like, if this doesn't go right, it's fucking terrifying. Everything's going <laughs> to yeah. fall apart. Yeah. How did you bring that playfulness into your life? Like I, I'm so curious to understand how that happens and, and yeah. talk about that. Well, there too, a little bit by force, it was kind of just rammed down my throat because you will find yourself chronic illness, disability, all these things. There's there's this incredibly awkward. Like they just make for incredibly awkward moments where you know, like your leg falls off when you're walking across the street or you know whatever. Yeah. Like really ridiculous things happen. And Did that happen? Oh, yeah. Wow. My favorite was in Denver when I was running across the street and my leg flew off and I was wearing pants and I could tell that all the traffic came screeching to a halt and I just, I was on the ground and looked around. My leg was like 10 feet away and the facial expressions that people had, they were so freaked out because they hadn't put the math together that this was a fake leg. I mean, I just really thought some dude's leg had just flown off spontaneously. And the guy, some guy got out of his car and went and picked up my leg and carried it back to me and handed me with the, the funniest facial expression I have ever seen in my life. And so all I what? could do, all, there was nothing to do but to laugh. Like it was scary, I suppose, but I was safe and it was just funny. Wow. So stuff like that happens and just by force. What did that guy say to you? He didn't say much. <laughs> no, no, I would have loved to have kept in touch with him. He yeah. probably needed therapy. He looked so <laughs> freaked out. He really looked panged. I want to know what that guy looked like in the when he got home. I want to know yeah. what the first five minutes of him being home Me too. Like. And me too. Did he tell people? Were they going to think he was crazy? Like, I mean, I, the whole thing. So moments like that 
they're all over the place. You smell funny for a while. I used to sweat like a pig. I would just like I would leave puddles wherever mm. I sat. I was you're just gross at times. You just and because you really don't have a choice, you deal with it. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the key, like not having a choice. These were not recreational thoughts. These were not aspirational things I'd like to work on. They're like, do this now because you have to get through your day. In a way, for folks, perhaps if I can put us in the same boat in terms of coming from a similar background, I needed to be – someone needed to yank me out of that mode. I wasn't going to – I didn't think I would be able to do that myself. But circumstance pulled me out of it. And Mm -hmm. so by just rolling around with my own life, the playfulness came. This key point about playfulness because it is a real bomb. I mean if you can find yourself playful, again, it implies you're safe and implies many things. But it's also just fun and you're fun to be around. (laughs) And I think – the key way to get there is when you really – if you really rope it into your worldview that no matter what you do, you are going to die someday because you are. If you can just reconcile that fact and put it in your worldview, then the pressure's off in some way. Like succeed, you're going down. Fail, you're going down. So either way, with that end point kind of guaranteed, you're safe. You kind of can't go wrong. And that's the gist that's made playfulness much more accessible to me because I'm going down no matter what I do. So might as well have fun. And then I got a service dog, Vermont, who was his name. And I got a service dog when I went back to college, had him for 11 years. And just watching him in the world was so instructive, how playful he was and how when he felt safe, and that was the key. If you can feel safe, then you can play. And internally or externally, that's the key ingredient. And so when I could see my dog, when Verm was safe, when he was feeling good, he was the most playful, loving, ridiculously ebullient critter. And just naturally, and it came easily. And just I learned from him. That was another big piece of it. I love that. And my favorite thing, I would watch him and he loved, he needed me. Like he loved, like he didn't see some broken person who was missing parts. He wasn't comparing me to some abstract thing he thought humans should look like. You know, I don't know that humans are the highest species sometimes. I mean, he's very advanced. That's a very advanced... It's like super in the moment. He's not treating you like he thinks you should be. He's not mm-hmm. bummed that his life isn't what it is. He just deals with what is. And we could all learn from that. Yeah, I love that. Following that thread a little bit, what are the things you've learned about creating that safe feelings that you can mm-hmm. play? Like what do you have in your life that creates that safety so that mm-hmm. you feel free to, to play? Well, for me, I think the biggest answer to that question has been friendship. Mm. To me, friendship is the highest station. I have been in... You know, I've been married, I've been in romantic relationships, you know, all that stuff. But I just for me, the way I feel, the openness, the loving, the lack of like jealousy and clinging, and I, I, I am least contorted in friendships. And I feel the most open, most loving, and most loved. And it's that kind of mode. I have been blessed with really beautiful friendships. And friendships that have, interestingly, I know they're beautiful because they got stressed. You know, and my friends reacted. They responded. Hmm. You know, it's kind of an interesting thing to think about. Here's another tangent. But like compassion, right? You probably like compassion. You probably think that's a pretty good thing. You know, it's a good feeling to receive it. It's a good feeling to feel it. But the only way we get – like the only way I know that compassion exists in someone is when it's actually tested. Like when something's wrong, when there's some suffering in the air, Mm -hmm. that's what summons the compassion. They're – you need them both. So I had the luck, good luck of having this misfortune, which summoned all this beauty mm-hmm. in other people, which summoned all this loving compassion in other people that I didn't know existed. It had never been summoned and it, there had been no need for it. But I got to see it 
because there was a there was a need for it. Friendship has been the proof point for me. They are the ones who created that space, and I guess that was the relationship to something had to go wrong for that mm-hmm. space to reveal itself. Huh. I want to pivot a little bit to death. Sure. Not a sen- not a <laughs> sentence I've used often, <laughs> yeah. but um, as I mentioned before we started talking with the mics, I mentioned you know the conceit of this maybe being what working with death has taught you about Mm -hmm. designing a life. Mm -hmm. So as a way of getting there, perhaps I'm curious, having been around so many people who are at the end of their lives, Mm -hmm. what are the like things that people actually care about at the Mm -hmm. end? Or maybe even along with that, what are the things you most often see them regretting Mm -hmm. or wishing they had done differently? Um, To answer that first question, it does seem that, like so much of the stuff we've been talking about and our own quests sort of overcome the daily pulls that turn us into things that we don't quite want to be. These are daily challenges, whether it's pressures to perform here or there. You know, like we said, like what, like what happened for me when I got injured, I do see that happen at the end of life where people get to let go of a lot of concerns hmm. on the upshot. Some of those things they don't want to let go of and it's just horribly sad, but it does force a certain perspective, a more of a cosmic perspective. I feel this too. Like time and space took on different meaning. Like a hundred years is no longer a long time to me. When I start thinking about the stretch of life and life inside of me and outside of me, and I see this in my patients too, you, you can't help but get in touch with a bigger worldview. Well, you can't help. It doesn't always happen. But it does feel very accessible to start thinking it's more cosmic time where we're all, even if you live to be 120, that, that's a blip. And that I have come to love, and I've watched that in my eyes and my patients too. Not everyone loves it. Sometimes it really challenges your ego. But in a way, it's nice at the end of life. You get to feel nice and small, and all hmm. the little concerns that just drove you batty are in proportion now. They're in perspective now, and they reveal themselves to be small things. Wow. You know. And so at best, I guess what I'm saying is you come to a place of a grander perspective. Huh. And the ego, this thing that is about to die with enough time and support – you're aware that, sure, this body dies or this ego dies, but the life that this thing's a part of keeps going, like that there's so much more life, that life is huge, that life's going to keep going. And so, yeah, you're mourning your own loss, but you're super aware that you're entering, you're re-entering the sort of cosmic side huh. of things. And that can be very beautiful to see. That does happen. Wow. So uh, basically a perspective. Yeah. Comes. It goes back to the art, the art history yeah. in a way that was that's super interesting. It comes down to how humans see themselves in the world. And that mm-hmm. is a very subjective, squishy thing. And we can zoom in and see ourselves very big in a small pond. Or we can zoom out and see ourselves teeny in a little pond. And the, the human capacity to choose your point of view is stunning. Huh. That's our singular talent, if you ask me. And I watch people exercise that at the end of life. Wow. And w- what are some small things maybe in your life that you – like, what's something you used to worry about that you just don't worry about anymore? Well, I still worry. That's a funny thing. <laughs> so it's more like I've gotten better, like we said earlier, I've gotten better at catching myself. And again, it's back to like, you don't overcome these impulses, these urges to worry about this or that. It's just that worry is put in perspective. Uh, my patients don't necessarily lose their fear of death, but that fear gets in, becomes in perspective. There's a proportionality to it at best. So some of the things you might let go of, you don't really let go of them. You just kind of Catch yourself fretting over something that really doesn't matter. And then mm-hmm. at best, you kind of laugh at it and you move on. So I don't actually see myself or others actually dropping concerns for little things. They just, they're in proportion. Okay. Is there one example of a concrete thing that 
where that happens. Well, I'm my fan. I just love this example. I keep finding ways to use this example. For some reason, I'm just enamored with it. it Jeanette, a patient of mine who was at the hospice, at Zen Hospice for a while. <laughs> she, she dropped her concern for smoking. She restarted smoking. <laughs> and I just thought there was something so beautiful about it because – it's not like if you don't smoke, you're not going to die. Either way, the death's coming. She had quit smoking years ago for her health, and here she was dying of ALS, which starves people of breath, right? Huh. And so she started smoking again because she knew death was coming no matter what she did. So she was no longer kicking and screaming, and she was rolling with it. And that opened her up. She loved her Galois cigarettes. So she re started re-smoking again in the hospice. And it, <laughs> wow. And honestly, it was something to celebrate. And her explanation was so beautiful. She said she's not – It's not. A, it wasn't a self-destructive bent. Uh, it wasn't her trying to hasten her death. It was her – losing her breath was what was going to kill her. And while she still had breath, she wanted to feel her lungs. And so by inhaling smoke, it was like she took these like casts of her lungs with every breath and she could feel the contours of her lungs wow. and she could see her breath. It was stunning, poetic. It was beautiful. So I, that doesn't really answer your question. Like but, I say, I yeah. always try to – for some reason, I love Jeanette's example and how it turns health on its head a little bit. But so she let go of her fear of dying in a way. She let go of her fear of being uh, a naughty person smoking mm. and she just let herself do it. It felt good. There's this moment – in the, I think it was in the book, but I may have read it somewhere else, where you're talking about how Zen hospice, when someone dies mm. and they, the body's being taken out of the guest house, you guys have a flower ceremony. Yeah. And the purpose of that is to start the grieving process with warmth. Yeah. Which I love that idea. I yeah. It's great. It's beautiful. I'm curious how the lessons you've learned about grief and loss, mm. specifically related to death, how they've informed other aspects of loss in your life. Mm -hmm. So the end of a career or the mm -hmm. end of a relationship, like what have you learned about grieving and mourning mm. in your work with death that you've then used with other aspects of loss? Yeah. Honestly, I think grieving, if we humans right now are being asked if there's sort of one skill that we humans should really work on to kind of pull us through these times, I honestly think it's grieving. And I'll explain why. I think when you start thinking about grief and its relationship to life, you quickly realize that grief and love are totally entwined. But you don't love someone or something, losing it's not such a big deal, right? So the pain, in a way, is directly related to your love. And that connection, for me, has been really potent. So when I feel grief and I feel lost, because it's not necessarily a comfortable feeling, mm -hmm. you know, I think I would have in the past wanted to kind of kick it out of myself. And I did this when my sister died. I didn't give myself much grieving time. And I regret it so much. It's like a singular regret in my life because I was cutting off this source of loving my sister by trying to kick this hard feeling out of myself. I was kicking her out of myself. Mm -hmm. It was really a huge mistake. If I had learned this relationship to love, I wouldn't have been so angry at these feelings. I wouldn't have been so bothered by them. And then I would have probably rolled around with them. And so normalizing grief, understanding that it's going to have its way with you and they're weird feelings. It's a surreal period and it can feel off and hard. It feels often hard, though, because you've lost a, a big piece of what constitutes reality for you. And that should be hard. I welcome that pain now in a mm. way because it means I love. And that connection has been huge for me and the patients I've worked with. But if you let yourself grieve and if even if you revel in it to some degree, that's where you get to form a new relationship with the thing that's, that you've lost. And then that, and that way, it, you live on with it, too. That's a beautiful notion. Like... A, if I'm grieving, it tells me I love this thing. And if I let myself grieve, I'm going to get to keep loving this thing going forward. 
And that that's a pretty good deal. Wow. What is fueling that pain look like? Just sitting with it? Yeah. I think so much of what we're talking about, man, is really, it's not kicking feelings out of yourself. It's actually daring to let yourself feel it, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. Yeah. So you do that, then you're not feeling guilty for feeling a certain way, feeling ashamed for what's wrong with me. I'm so sad. You know, the guilt and the shame stuff, that's this gratuitous pain that we kind of heap on ourselves and each other that I feel is almost criminal. So no, I think that the instruction here is just let yourself feel what you're going to feel. I mean, for me, the difference between a thought and a feeling has to do with a feeling. You can't control it. It has mm-hmm. its own life. It's much more mysterious. That is to be welcomed, even if it's an obnoxious feeling. And having come close to death, that was another early thought was like, holy shit, like I almost even kind of enjoy feeling pain. Why do I enjoy? I don't enjoy it. But I was just so glad to feel anything. Mm-hmm. Like numbness is the enemy to me, mm. not pain. And if you go through it enough, you realize that you can withstand a lot. You can feel, you can take it, you know? And in some ways, then pride kind of lines up with it too and all sorts of good stuff. So I think the whole key to so much of what we're talking about, whether it's grief or pain or whatever it is, just let yourself feel it. You're not going to stay in grief forever. If you dare to like revel it in a little bit, it doesn't mean it's going to stick around forever, that dark cloud. No, it actually is kind of the opposite. If you don't deal with it, it's going to stick around and annoy you for years to come in indirect ways. How much shame and guilt did you feel about your accident? Oh, a lot. A lot. That took me a long time to work through. There's a lot to say about that. But I think apropos our conversation, it was... I felt really, I mean, here, sophomore year college, these beautiful friendships and, you know, and those guys, man, they came to the hospital like every day. Mm. And uh, that's not the college experience I think they were looking for, you know, like it took from them. I took from them a lot and I felt horrible about that. And for, for many, many years, I remember when I came home from the hospital, one of the first things I had, uh, my mom and I actually had an argument and she made a comment to, to me. She said, you know, this didn't just happen to you. It happened to us too, you know, this accident. And I, I was in a wheelchair at the time. I was so enraged at that thought. I stood up on my stumps, on the bare stump of my leg, stood up, picked up this wheelchair and hucked it across the room. It was like a weird expulsion of energy because it was so, I knew she was right, but that was a horrible realization. Not only that I had to do with this pain, but all my friends and family had to deal with this pain too. I mean, it felt horrible. And she was right. And it took me years to really reconcile all that. Flash forward to, man, I think my 30th birthday party. It wasn't actually at the party, but it was my 30th birthday where we, we recongealed a lot of these friendships and we talked some of this stuff out. And they made the point like, no, man, this is humans. This is like we... It wasn't quid pro quo. We we learned a lot from that experience too. Like it wasn't something any of us would chosen, but we learned a ton and mm-hmm. we were so happy you survived and we didn't do it. So you owed us. You don't owe us. And, you know, they just kind of laughed at me. And it was such a relief. And I've come to really, and I see this with working with patients and their caregivers because this happens a lot. People feel like they're a burden. And I think what we have to do as a society is become clear that there's a real loop between caregiving and care receiving. That it's not like selfish is the care receiver and selfless is the caregiver. Not at all. Like that doesn't work. Like we all have to find the exchange in that. Like one of the things I can do for my patients, if I find some excuse to take something from their experience or a lesson I learn from them, I'm sure that I always tell them because otherwise they just feel like a passive vessel taking from people all the time. And if I can say that you gave me something, God, it really lights them up so nicely. And as you probably know, it's the giver who should be thankful, really. I mean, we have, if you have something to give, you have something to offer, that's something to be thankful for. So 
we got to kind of upend this idea that caregiving is selfless and care receiving is selfish. It's totally, it's all wrapped together. It's a real sweet little loop. That reciprocity is where all the lessons are. And also the humility of understanding that none of us is immune. We're all dependent on each other at some point. This fantasy that I'm independent, that word is a mis- that independence does not exist. It's maybe something you can aspire to. You can be relatively independent, but I do not believe an independent person has ever walked the planet or ever will. And I wouldn't want to be that person. How lonely would that be? The last question on this podcast is Mm. always for a favorite fuck up. (laughs) Well, we've just been talking about a big one. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't know if if you'd characterize that as a fuck up or not. uh, Yeah, it was fuck up. I I shouldn't have been on top of that train. Um, But let's see. We've talked enough about that. Favorite fuck up. God, there's lots of them. I mean, I think my marriage was a fuck up <laughs> in some real way. Jory, I love you so much if you're ever listening to this. Jory and I tried to be married for three years. We just, it was not on. We was, it was, we just, it was fucked up. We were just not, I don't know what we were doing. It was, it was an odd experiment. And we really, really loved each other. And once we kind of realized that and split up, we've both been so much happier for oh. it and both love each other so much more for it. So in a way... It was a fuck up to get married and we kind of made a mess of each other's lives for a few years on some level, but we both grew a ton from it and are much closer for it now. Like that fuck up was now is just a kind of a fun story that we reflect on. I mean, we call it a favorite fuck up because it feels like a fuck up at the time, but then you look back on it and you're like, yeah, I can, I can have fond memories of that. Yeah. Scare quotes, fuck up. Yeah. And I would say, man, learning is such a wonderful thing. Like learning happens. Yeah, you can learn from doing things right, but we really learn from doing things wrong. Mm-hmm. And I would say you sal- you can salvage just about any fuck up by learning something. That's why you need that sense of playfulness. Yep. So you can fuck up. <laughs> you got it, pal. <laughs> well, VJ, thank you so much for coming on and, and for your candor and for yeah. all the work you do. It's a pleasure, man. Thank you so much for having me. That is it for this week. Thank you to Dr. Miller for coming on. Again, his book, A Beginner's Guide to the End, Practical Advice for Living Life and Facing Death, which he wrote with co-author Shoshana Berger, is out now. Powerful in the way it talks about death. Also just practical. Spoiler alert. It's probably going to happen to you. This tells you how to do it. It's very useful. Not to end on too dark a note. Just saying. Think about it. Thank you to our producer, Jessamyn Molly. Thank you to you guys for listening. It is not too late in the season to subscribe if you haven't done so or leave a review. I will see you guys next Monday.